from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. How you doing? Doing good. Welcome to Bike Talk, everybody. Seamus Garrity and Lindsey Sturman are out on assignment, so Nick and I are holding down the fort this week. Yep. It's a good week for cycling. Yeah, it's spring. It's spring. And you know what spring means, don't you? The Paris-Roubaix. It is the Paris-Roubaix and all the classics, yeah. Matthew Vanderpool won the Paris-Roubaix bike race on Sunday. Uh, and that's a that's a really a famous bike race where they race over the cobblestones in France. It's, it, it's really epic. There's a famous movie about it called The Hell of the North. And that's what that bike race is called. In two weeks, we have Flanders. And these are all famous old classic bike races. Really a, a fun thing to get to learn about a little bit. Yeah. In two weeks, there's Flanders. And then there's a couple more after that. And then in the summertime, all the grand tours start. The, the tour of, of Italy is first. The tour of France is in July. And then the tour of Spain is in, in September. And those grand tour races are 21 days long. And there's usually a, a three weeks or a month off in between each race. So the riders have time to rest and recoup before the next Grand Tour. But it really it's, it makes for a fun racing season. Yeah, I'm going to watch some of that this year. <laughs> well, you know, on today's show, we we, we got three great interviews. Uh, one, the first one is with Dashka Slater, and she's a children's book author. And she wrote a book about a young kid who's stepping up in bikes, you know, to a bigger bike, going from a pony to a horse, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great analogy. And Dashka's a best-selling author, and it was great to be able to get this interview. And uh, the second interview is is um, a wonderful beating of the bike lash story. Yeah, Pittsfield is keeping its lane. The last one is from San Francisco, where Valencia Street got a protected bike lane down the middle. Right. Great. Well, we'd love to see some growth going on there. You ready for the first one? Yeah, let's go. First up is Dashka Slater, a New York Times best-selling children's book author and award-winning journalist whose new book is Wild Blue, Taming a Big Kid Bite. And you created this book. I wrote the words and the amazing Laura Hughes did the incredible illustrations. And so it's about a child's transition from one bike to a larger bike as she grows. Exactly. So Kayla has her small bike, which she calls her pink pony. Then she reaches that stage that every child reaches where, you know, they have massively outgrown it, but don't want to necessarily leave that bike behind. And so it's about that moment of starting on a bigger bike and having to learn how to ride it. Do you remember that moment for your own life? I do remember it vividly. I remember uh, two things that are both in the book. Uh, One is the moment of having the training wheels removed from my bike and having an image in my mind about how this whole thing was going to go, that I was going to be, you know, just like all the other cyclists I had ever seen and getting on my bike and careening down the driveway and immediately tipping over. Um, under the, as I remember it, scornful eyes of the two little girls who lived next door, both of whom already had mastered bike riding. And so I remember feeling both deeply ashamed that they had seen this catastrophe and also outraged 
that I had, <laughs> that it happened at all. Really? So you're like going back in time and helping the child you were with this story. Yeah, exactly. I remember so vividly what it was like, that it was harder than I expected. And also the incredible attraction. I lived on a street in which I, you know, in my memory, I could see older kids going by on their bikes all the time. And I remember watching them and watching them kind of zigzag down the street and thinking like, how do they do that? How do they make their tires go in that interesting way? And so um, I really wanted to, to be a cyclist. And so I wanted to both evoke that desire and the challenge of the early riding stage, but also the joy and the incredible freedom that having a bike provides. Yeah. In fact, you make a comparison in the book. You compare it to horses. I compare it to horses. So Kayla has in her mind from the very beginning, she's her bike helmet is her cowboy hat and she has her little cowboy boots. And you know she has this kind of wild West fantasy going on in her head the whole time from the beginning when she has her pink pony, which uh, gets put out to pasture. And then she goes and wrangles a new bike from the herd at the bike store. So when she masters this amazing feat of riding a bicycle, she is riding the wild blue prairie on this, you know, imaginary galloping blue horse. What age child would this be? Four to seven um, is that kind of crucial age when you're uh, hopefully learning to ride and and making those transitions. Um, you know, even if you have a bike that is two wheels, no training wheels. I remember the transition to the next size up also being scary that all of a sudden you, you know, the ground is a little farther away. It's for all of those early bike riding stages. And it's also a stage where imagination is so important. Absolutely. Although it's interesting. I have gotten a lot of responses to this book in which people have both talked about how they remembered when they read it, that you took them back to being a child and having that bike horse fantasy. Uh, but also many adults have admitted to me that they still kind of have the bike horse fantasy, which I do as well. I tend to personify my bikes and see them as my trusty steeds. What is a story to a kid that age? Because a kid might not even differentiate as much between real life and a story. Absolutely. One of the fun things about writing books for children, and you know, it's something like my 15th book for kids or 14th, oh. I'm not sure. Anyway, the joy of writing for children is that when a bike, when a sorry, when a book clicks for a kid, it is so impactful. Like they kids love the things that they love in a way that we as adults can only aspire to. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to still be able to have that all-consuming obsession with something that I had as a kid. So it's really fun when it's a book that you've written because kids memorize the book. They uh, notice tiny details in the illustrations because picture books are meant to be read over and over again. And so they really have a lot of time to study them and pick out the interesting details to relive it over and over again. Kids love to talk about their bikes. 
and they love to tell me what color their bike is and where they want to ride and, you know, what kind of helmet they have and all of those things. You meet your young readers? I do. I go to bookstores and schools. I start going to schools in a couple of weeks with this book, but I've done a few bookstore events and the kids are, we have a little fantasy that we go on where we put on our helmets and go for a bike ride together. And, you know, they're so into it and they always want to tell me whether they have handbrakes or foot brakes, you know, <laughs> they're very specific on their particular bicycle. Wow. You know, there's a, I just interviewed what will be last episode, uh, someone from the Agile Rascal Theater troupe. They put on plays on bikes. And one of the things they did was they had their audience on bikes pretending they were on a hunt. I'm oh, assuming, wow. I'm assuming they were on horses. That's um, amazing. I love yeah. that. <laughs> so would you want to read the book or an excerpt from it? Do you have I'd be happy handy? to. Because your your listeners can't see the illustrations, I will do some just scribing. This will Great. be closed captioned. Uh, The book is called Wild Blue, Taming a Big Kid Bike. My pink pony and I ride the wide open spaces from sunrise to sunset until my daddy says, you've grown, Kayla. You're too big for that itty bitty bike. Now we're seeing Kayla on her pink bike with training wheels um, out on the street, uh, having a grand time. Then he puts my pony out to pasture and takes me to wrangle a new one from the herd. And Kayla has a, a lasso that she's twirling above her head on, the, on her way to the bike store. I name her Wild Blue. Daddy helps me saddle her up. Then I take the reins. We're going places, I tell her. It's an old West sheriff that she's passing by and, and one of those cactuses. Exactly. And she, she sort of starts in a in a regular city landscape with stores and and then it transforms into the old west the shadow of her on her bike is a rider on a horse yes yes so she's she's going places but wild blue bucks me off and it's a a two-page spread of this massive blue horse and kayla flying through the air daddy i yell this bike's not tame enough to ride You have to get right back on, Daddy says. Show her who's boss. Kayla has a little scraped knee in this picture. So I do. But Wild Blue bucks me off again and again. She's too spirited, I say. I want my pink pony back. And we're seeing a a number of spot illustrations of Kayla uh, falling off of her bike. But Daddy just wheels his red stallion from the stable and puts my brother in the back saddle. Let's go to the park, he says. You can practice there. The whole family is walking to the park with the baby brother in the backseat of of dad's bike. At the park, I check her spokes for brakes and her frame for scrapes. I sing her a little riding song. Gentle bike, good bike, nice bike. You don't have to buck and kick. You can roll slowly, slow. Yippity-yay-yay, yippity-yo. Daddy asks, are you planning to ride that bike today? Maybe, I say. And Kayla's been checking over her bike, looking at the bike, 
uh, talking to the bike while dad's kind of in the background with a baby brother. Taming a wild blue bicycle takes time. I comb wild blue's mane and stroke her flanks. We watch the other bikes whiz by, cantering and galloping. And here the bikes are transforming in the course of the picture from bicycles to horses as Kayla watches, much as I did when I was young. Wild Blue lifts her head, sniffs the wind. She trills her bell, a wild bike whinny. She wants to run, and so do I. Go ahead, Daddy says. I put one foot over and rested on the stirrup. I look around to see if anybody's watching while Blue gets nervous when people stare. I push off with my other foot. While Blue goes slow and a little wobbly because she's not sure who's in charge. I'm not sure who's in charge either, but I know it's supposed to be me. So I pedal hard until we stop wobbling. And then we ride. And here we're, we see as she pushes off and starts riding that her shadow transforms from bike to horse. Mm -hmm. Around the playground, down to the tennis courts, up to the snack bar and across the wild blue prairie. And we see a whole map of the playground and all the places that she goes. Her legs are my legs, her mane, my mane, her breath, my breath. And here it's a gorgeous two page spread of Kayla on the back of this wild blue horse that's cantering through the wild blue prairie. Beautiful picture. Looks like you tamed that bicycle, daddy says, and they're starting to ride back home now. I shake my head. Nope, she's still wild, I say, but so am I. And Kayla, and the final spread is on the back of Wild Blue, who is in horse form and uh, is rearing up. That would be a wheelie, wouldn't it? It would be, exactly. And I feel like Kayla is just the kind of kid who is going to learn how to do one. <laughs> well, I think it touches a chord. Well, thank I, you. You feel like you got it? You captured something? I do. This book, you know, sometimes picture books can really make you crazy because they're so, it's such a small amount of text and you have to do so many things with very few words and make it understandable, but also original for a young audience. And, but this book actually came pretty easily. And a lot of it, as I read it, I'm always struck by how much, without really thinking about it, I was pulling from my own experience of you know, not wanting people to be watching, looking at other cyclists, you know, what you're trying to do always when you write for kids is to tap into that inner child. And uh, that inner child happens to be named Kayla, apparently. And I felt like I, I, I found her. Do you have favorite books of yours? Like you would have, yeah, I guess you wouldn't have favorite children. It's <laughs> That's funny that you say that because Kids often ask me which are my favorite books of mine. And I always say that's like asking your parents, you know, which is their favorite child. But I will say that I have another book with a bicycle in it. 
that's one that is being made into an animated film right now, and which is supposed to be out within the next couple of months. That book, um, which is called Dangerously Ever After, is about a princess who loves dangerous things. She has a brakeless bicycle and that she takes on an adventure when a prince brings her a gift that she doesn't want and she goes on a bike ride to return it to him. I've had kids who are fans of that book tell me um, you know, in letters that they also like to ride their brakeless bicycle. I'm assuming that their bicycle actually does have brakes unless it's, you know, a child size fixie, but hopefully they, they are able to stop and be safe. But I like that they're pretending to be Princess Amanita, the dangerous princess. Wow. You're promoting bikes. I am promoting bikes subconsciously, really. Like I don't set out to, to say, you know, everybody should ride a bike, but because bikes are such a big part of my life and I enjoy riding so much and think it's just one of the great joys of life. Of course, I want to share that. A question that we often end with is what's your bike joy? I am training right now for what was supposed to be a century. Um, it just got downgraded to a metric century because it's uh, the roads are washed out and we can't get to our destination um, on the roads right now. But it's um, one of the joys of training for that ride, which I actually, which I've done every year for I don't know, twelve years or something. I always like the training the best, much more than the actual ride day ride. So this weekend we did a two bridges ride that kind of makes a most of a circle around San Francisco Bay, and it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous ride. And we finally got some sunshine after a very wet and rainy spring. Being up on the bridge on my bike is so fun and riding next to the water because the ocean is my other favorite thing. And you live in Oakland. I do. All right. Anything in, we should know about your uh, upcoming appearances or any dates or any places we should look? I will be at the Texas Library Association conference um, in a couple of weeks. If uh, you have any Texas librarians in your uh, listening base, Please find me. I'll be signing copies of Wild Blue um, at TLA. Otherwise, it's uh, both my books, Dangerously Ever After and Wild Blue, and many others can be found at your local bookstore. Thank you so much, Dashka. Thanks so much for having me. That was great. I managed to get a copy of the book, and now my daughter's reading it. That's perfect. Oh, hey, you know, a question I've always had, is that your daughter at the beginning of the show who goes, bike talk? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I can remember as a kid, you know, uh, riding my yellow Schwinn Stingray down the street and whipping my rear tire of my steed to encourage my bicycle to go faster, thinking it was a horse. There's a lot of romance around riding horses. And a bike yeah. is a great substitute. The bike, it's the thing itself too. Right. I, I would go as go as far to say is that the horse is a great substitute for the bike. <laughs> If you Next up one. is uh, the bike lane in, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. We fight so hard for these things. And when they finally get in, sometimes there's a lot of bike lash against them. And this is a real positive story where uh, the all-powerful bike lobby stepped in and saved the day in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. 
Supporters of a protected bike lane in the city of Pittsfield in the Berkshires are celebrating the city council's striking down of a referendum to remove the city's protected bike lane pilot project. Here's an interview with Ricardo Morales, City of Pittsfield Commissioner of Public Utilities, about the journey to keep a protected bike lane in Pittsfield. The ballot initiative for North Street that was going to try to roll back the bike lane there did not go through. That is correct. Yeah. It made its rounds for about two months, end of January, all the way through end of March. And it was finally put to rest. I think a lot of it was driven by... I would say a voiceful minority who wanted to bring back two lanes in each direction. And we all recognize that that is not a safe alternative to what we have now. And I think there's also consensus in there's many ways we can improve what we have now. I think what prevailed at the end of the day is none of those improvements should include going back to four lanes. Yeah. When you get the pushback to safe streets, it often takes the form of we weren't consulted, we weren't included in the discussions. And I think a lot of cities are learning that there are ways of going about it that will at least reduce that kind of argument. I think it's definitely important to include in all the things we do room for people to voice concerns, voice their ideas and thought process and walk along with our own methodology, right? But I think it has more impact in our success and less on whether it's right or wrong. We could have the greatest ideas and want to implement them. I think if we want to be successful at implementing these innovative ideas in our cities, we should include more input or at least opportunity for input. And that way we have more backing in the sense that we did all these things and we take away the fire from someone saying, I was not given the opportunity to speak up. And that allows on the long run, a more smoother project I've learned from this project. This same thing is happening in cities around the world. I can imagine. And again, I feel like one of the things that a Bike Talk podcast can do is to put it out there. Hey, this is happening over and over again. City traffic engineers are doing what they have learned is the best for everybody. And then people try to rip it out because they don't get it. And I know I'm supposed to be empathetic, but you have people out there who are saying, for example, a 15-minute city is a conspiracy theory by liberals to trap you in a prison of your neighborhood. And you have just people who are used to the status quo of driving everywhere. So you run the range of just sort of car-brained to crazy. It's true. I think we lose ourselves in the car-initiated narrative of let's be good to the environment by improving how our vehicles are more efficient and consume less. But then we lose the sense of everything else that building a place that is faster for vehicles has implications that go far beyond our fuel efficiency. So that's what leads me to say, and I'm borrowing this from, I think it's a book, it's called The Green Metropolis by David Owen. I read it a long time ago. But this phrase stuck with me. It's not about the miles per gallon your vehicle gives you. It's about the miles you drive. 
And when we think about it that way, we look at all the secondary things. They're really primary negative impacts, but we do not think of them as primary negative impacts, a car-centric society. And that's given out all our spaces in favor of parking, predominantly in our downtowns, or giving up on safety for everyone in the name of better, faster, easier mobility on a car, or building out away from everyone else in this urban sprawling, which rises all the costs for our infrastructure. So we think, oh yeah, let's just get a 15 miles per gallon vehicle and that's bad. And then let's compare that to a 50 miles per gallon vehicle and that's better. So that's the one I'm going to get. I'm going to be better for the environment because of that. That's cool. That's nice that you're thinking about it, but you're not thinking the big picture of what that means. Yeah. And it seems like the farthest a lot of people have gone is to switch to electric vehicle. Yeah. That clearly in the same vein, we have different layers on that. We have driving electric vehicles at this moment. Most of them are still reliant on fossil fuels to generate the electricity that they run on, right? The carbon footprint is not being lowered as much as one would think. And the second thing is everything I just said about the implications of building our world around vehicles and not around humans those do not go away. They're still present despite our shift to electric vehicles. So what have you got now in Pittsfield? I asked you if they would keep trying to roll back the bike lanes or pull out the bike lanes. And you said there are multiple interests at play, but everybody's talking about redesigning the bike lanes. Why? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we should never look at a piece of road street and think we're done. We're done with this. It should be like this for the next 100 years. And that's it. That's the wrong kind of thought process. In my opinion, we need to always be looking at improving our built environment, especially our streets. And when we look at North street right now, first it was built very quickly within a program that was put forward by the state to be implemented within months to take action. And we did things that normally we would try to do differently if we had more time. And I think that's the next stage in the bike lanes on North Street. But concepts that we have now would still remain. We have a double buffer bike lane. We would like to keep or improve a bike lane. We would not want to go back to less than double buffered bike lane. So that means either moving it away entirely from the street and closing the street further narrowing it down and raising the bike lane protected by parked vehicles. That's one option. That takes a lot of money. That's why that wasn't done initially. Another feature is the one lane of travel for the cars. That should not go back as well. We should still go with one lane or better, eliminating any car travel from the corridor. That's also been put in the table by some. And I'm not entirely against that. I just think some amalgamation of all these things can exist on North Street. That would be amazing. A pedestrianized North Street? Right. That would drive those people crazy. Yeah, but it's been said out loud. And I think it would be the highest degree of safety we can achieve on our downtown. And we need to keep that in mind as well. 
Yeah. Well, the research is there, I think, showing that bike lanes are good for business, that if you make things easier for cars to go fast down a business corridor, that doesn't translate to them stopping and shopping and spending money. And the same or better is true about a pedestrianized street. People can just very easily turn into a store and spend their money, which is what the opponents of safer streets that are businesses are always thinking they're going to lose money. Yeah. Something else that comes to mind when talking about North Street is this notion that we have 300 other problems on North Street and that the bike lanes is not the right one to focus on. And in that narrative, we lose track of a few things. One, we can deal and tackle issues more than one at a time. And two, our responsibility in my department, Public Works, we need to focus on the public right-of-way. And if there is something we can do to make it safer, we should do, given all the parameters. We need money, we need time. So when we have those things, we should take action. And that's not to say that the other problems and issues on our downtown are not important or are not worth tackling. They should also be tackled. But when we do things incrementally, we still get to the end result little by little, right? So we can do these things and still get there and not have to wait for the right moment to solve all the problems at the same time. Yeah. But you have a lot of support, right? I I think we do, yes. You have opponents, but you have a lot of support. Pissfield, I guess, has a lot of people who would like to see it become a better place. One of your supporters has said that they'd like to see it become the kind of place that you don't have to leave for opportunity. Right. So you're a very particular kind of place. You're Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Do you think that you have a lesson for other cities, different kinds of cities in different places? I think places like Pittsfield, where not every place in Pittsfield was transformed by urban renewal, places like Pittsfield have a unique opportunity to build upon the lessons we've learned in the last 20 years about what makes our streets safer and take action far easier than a city or neighborhoods that were torn apart by urban renewal and highways interchanges. And with that in mind, we need to look at creating places that are like Pittsfield. They represent a small city with some land area still untouched and some urban sprawl and build upon that and condense the population a little more, build more dense core and incrementally create safer streets and at the same time add some more public transportation infrastructure and actually also micromobility with the new technologies has has taken the stage the last few years. That's also important to play that in the different places like that. It has the potential to be easier to change our built environment in a positive way. And it seems like there might be some agreement about some things like diagonal parking. I don't know. They want diagonal parking. Yeah. Some business owners want diagonal parking. I think there's some consensus around that. I'm not entirely sure that diagonal parking would work. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to be studying that over the next month to see if that is an option for North Street. I think any option is viable depending on how much money and effort you're willing to put down for something. And the only way I see diagonal parking working is 
if it's head in diagonal, bike lanes need to be outside of the travel lanes. So raised bike lanes should be the goal there. If it is back in diagonal, we can have some options keeping that bike lane in the road between the diagonal parking and the travel lane. Yeah. I've heard it said that it's really just a myth that you can combine bikes or pedestrians and cars in the same space and have a good outcome. You really can't have them really share the road. Sharing the road. It's not a good idea unless I guess the only acceptable scenario where you can share the road between those two is where we can ensure that speeds are less than 20 miles an hour. And even then there's some risk. Yeah. At what point do the opponents of safe streets, I mean, safe for everybody outside of a car, what point do they begin to realize that this is a benefit to everyone? That's a tough question to answer, I guess, because we can speculate. But I have anecdotally, I can share that one thing that opponents to safer streets, specifically with the North Street iteration we have now, fail to recognize is how much safer this is because they cannot see beyond what is not happening. And I want to explain that a little bit. With the project we did on North Street, we also conducted a study And we were able to identify that around 70% less collisions were occurring on North Street for one year, comparing to years past. For someone on the road, that might be very intangible. It's a number in a report. And they still see collisions on North Street. So they attribute that to the design. What they're failing to do is recognizing that by attributing the collisions that are occurring to the design, they're also implying that because of the design, less collisions are occurring, but they don't make that connection. And that's where I've been spinning multiple times with opponents, trying to explain to them, you're acknowledging that this design is causing crashes. And yes, they happen. Collisions will still occur. People are behind the wheel right? This is not a perfect experiment where every variable is controlled, right? We have human beings behind the steering wheel and we make mistakes. So collisions will still happen. We need to further develop that thought into saying they were happening before we made the changes, but now let's compare the two. And when we do that, we find out that now they're happening much less than before. And it's not because of less traffic, because we compared traffic and traffic sustained, right? It was maintained volume. So the end of that thought process is that what we have now is safer. So somewhere along that thought process, the opponents to this design stop in that thought process and do not continue and finish that train of thought. And that's where I think a lot of times I try to help someone continue that train of thought to the end. And that's the outcome. What we have is safer. We've talked about this before. You're talking about data. And does data change hearts and minds? Yeah, very difficult. Very difficult. Some people will. But I think the majority, if you have some experience that goes deep into your being, into how you think, data won't change that. So it's a very uphill battle. Yeah, but I think if you pedestrianized it, (laughs) it'd be like a party. Right. I think it would be great. And I'm saying this, some business owners have suggested fully pedestrianizing it. Yeah, I think it has many advantages of doing that beyond not having the safety concern. 
And is there any way that you want people to support or anything you want people to pay attention to? Well, we are this year in an election year for the mayor of the city. And I think the North Street Bike Lanes will take a front stage. They did in the ballot question. And I think it's going to continue during the mayoral campaign. So I just think that people need to get informed. So if there's any questions around what you're seeing on the road, I think you should call or email our department, the city official, the Department of Public Services and Utilities. And that way we can inform as much as we can anyone utilizing and navigating our streets. All right. And your bike joy, last time you said your bike joy was seeing families using the bike lane outside your office window. You're going to yes, go with that? That happens a lot. My bike joy right now is we have automatic counters on North Street now. And I like opening the software that shows all the info and seeing the counts for the day before. That is so satisfying when I see on a wintry day, 120 bike rides in a day. Wow. This is through an intersection. So it brightens my day. And some days I expect less and I'm pleasantly surprised and that's even better. So I'm hoping to install more of these counters throughout the city to really measure how much bicycle activity occurs in our city. Thank you and keep up the good work. Ricardo Morales, Commissioner, Department of Public Services and Utilities, City of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Thank you, Nick. Chalk one up for bikes, Nick. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. My feeling is in so many of these kinds of things, once the bike lane is in for a while, people forget about it and, and the drivers aren't angry anymore and the road turns out to be safer for everyone, not just cyclists, not just people who are riding bikes, not just people who are walking, but for drivers also. So it's a win-win. In so many cases, people have to see it before they can believe it. Yeah. And then they also have to live with it for a little while. You know, it's new. You know, the road looks a little different than it used to. Just seeing it isn't enough. Sometimes they have to live it. Yeah, for a while. Right. Well, next up is a story from San Francisco about Valencia Street. It's also a bike lane story, uh, but it's a story where the bike lane is going to be down the middle of the road. And that's kind of a unique uh, structure, right? Yeah, not everybody's happy with it, actually. And you can hear that there are mixed reactions in this interview with these three bike advocates, one of whom is Robin Pam, who you interviewed on the show. Correct. Yeah. Kidsafe SF right. and Zach Lipton and Aditya Bumla and Seamus does the interview. Great. Not every bike lane has to be the same. So I'll be curious how this turns out. I am speaking with Aditya Bumla, Robin Pam and Zach Lipton about a fast turnaround for um, street safety in the city of San Francisco. Valencia has been a bicycle thoroughfare in San Francisco for many, many years. Um, And in 2019, the city installed protected bike lanes uh, from on a couple blocks of the street. Um, The street goes through uh, the Mission District, which is a historically Latino um, neighborhood in San Francisco. Um, It also has a vibrant small business corridor. Um, So there's a number of very unique small businesses that um, line the street. Also a lot of restaurants. um, So it's a very hopping destination, especially on the weekends and with nightlife. Um, And uh, after the city installed the protected lanes in a short section of the street, in 2019, uh, they had plans to 
continue to protect the bike lane for the remainder of uh, probably about another mile or two. Um, and then the pandemic hit. Literally, uh, the plans were approved, it was ready to go, and then pandemic. So here we are three years later, and in 2022, the city came back um, with a proposed plan that would um, create an unusual design, a center-running bike lane, a protected lane on the remainder of the street that hadn't been protected before. Um, and there was uh, a lot of controversy about this design, given that it was pretty unusual. No one had ever really seen this. Um, the city's justification was that uh, there are a lot of demands on the street on Valencia, which, to be fair, is true. Um, there's a lot of curb loading. Businesses need to get deliveries. Um, the rise of DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, um, all of the um, delivery services that are, you know, keeping small businesses and restaurants alive right now um, are proving a lot of demands on the curb. And the city had also introduced a parklet program in the pandemic. So a lot of these restaurants and uh, businesses had parklets that were in zones where the protected bike lane would otherwise go. So the city said, you know, this is the fastest way we can do anything is do the center running bike lane. And on Tuesday, uh, you know, there was a, a fair amount of pushback from advocates over the last six months or so about this, but on Tuesday, our uh, board of our transportation department approved this design. I would say we're all like healthily skeptical of this plan, um, but uh, we we all also are viewing it. I well, I don't want to speak for everyone, but you know, from my perspective, um, so I run Kids Safe San Francisco. You know, I think as as everyone has said, like the current situation on Valencia is so bad that we know we need something to change, and you know, what Zach and I have been working on for and what we've been working on at KidSafe over the past six months or so through engaging with SFMTA is trying to get them to use this as a first step toward reimagining Valencia as a street that has dramatically fewer cars. So there's been multiple plans floating around, um, whether that's making one way with one lane of traffic and having, you know, pedestrian space and a two-way cycle track on the other side of the street, I think a lot of us really would love to have a section that's a couple of blocks of completely pedestrianized promenade on Valencia. Um, and, you know, we have various thoughts on how we might get there. Um, Zach can talk a little bit about some of those that he's been working on. Um, but, you know, I think our, my, my perspective, certainly, and I want to speak for everyone, is that the center running lane is very unusual. It's untested. We think it's probably going to be safer than what's there right now, but we don't know for sure. And we want to use it as a step toward something much larger. The initial reaction to the center running lanes from advocates was pretty negative. People had concerns about their safety. People noted that the the only there aren't that many examples of these in the United States or the world. Um, the experience in Washington, D.C. and Monterey has not been all that favorable. Um, in D.C., they're looking at changing to a much bolder people first design right now. So it was always this thing of, you know, outright fight the center running lanes and fight for a new bike lane design or, okay, you're fixated on this design, this idea, but how can we still tilt this process, 
you know, 20 degrees more in our favor right now and get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And the, the approach of a bunch of us sort of coalesced around was to say, okay, do the center running lanes, but this is supposed to be a pilot. Why are you only testing one design in this pilot? Why, why not try multiple approaches so that you get information um, to figure out the long-term future of Valencia? And really, I think people need to see and experience this stuff to understand it. If you just come to them and you say, you know, oh, we're going to take away a car lane, we're going to pedestrianize this area, they start with the concerns. How am I going to load goods into my house? How am I going to... Um, maintain my business. If you make it happen in a way that includes them, but they can see and feel it, then that lets them understand that their needs will be met and that this will be good for them, that this makes the corridor into a destination, that this creates more public space, that this has all these benefits. What we ultimately got was this idea that, yes, they'll do this center running lane pilot, but they will come back in the near future um, and we're all going to have to do a lot of work to make this happen, to try bolder visions for a People First Valencia on selected blocks as well. And I think that'll also make the center lane design better, that if there's less through traffic, if there are blocks that essentially serve as a traffic diverter, that will help the entire corridor as well. Does this idea work? Um, it, it's obviously an improvement from what we have now there, correct? Correct, isn't um, it? Well, that's, I mean, I don't think that's obvious. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, what's what's important, I mean, like, you know, personally, my, my stance was like, hey, I think there's tactical advantages to letting these center running lanes go through for the reasons Zach's talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, it's, I think it's important to note that the bike community was pretty divided on this. Um, and there was a lot of people being like, no, like they're, you're putting bollards every 40 feet. Like people will park in these lanes. Like mm. this is, there's no concrete curbs. Like there's no, I actual... thought there, I heard there was a concrete. Is there not a two inch concrete uh, curb? There's yeah. gonna be like a mountable yeah. plastic. Um, they're like four inch bus curbs, basically like, mm -hmm. you know, plastic things that are being bolted into the ground. So I, I don't have an image of that in my mind. I don't know what that looks like. It's just like a, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's something you could write um, if you needed to. And, and so like a lot Maybe. of people are like, Hey, we're going to be put in the middle of traffic. This is, this is scary. And like without concrete, without like any sort of hardening, like, you know, this might be less safe. And, you know, I don't, I think it's bad enough right now with the cars in the center in, in the side running lanes that I'm like, oh, well, okay, I don't, I think it's like a wash. So I, I'm not, but it's, it's, I don't, it's a lot of people were pretty upset about this. And especially, you know, given San Francisco's track record of, oh yeah, we'll do an improvement. No worries, guys. If it's not safe, we'll fix it later. And then they don't, right? We see the Polk Street bike lanes. We see these like other bike lanes in cities that just like uh, other places in the city that'll just end. So a lot of us are like, okay, hey, this is important. We need to keep the pressure on MTA. Let us know, like, you know, somebody will get hurt. Like that, that's going to happen. Like how, we're going to need to like be able to push for, and the, and the reason Valencia is so complicated, and as Zach mentioned this earlier, is just because there are a million different ways people want to use the street and allowing cars for some of these and just like anybody to drive their car. It's not commercial loading. It's not like, even 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 DoorDash is uh, and Uber Eats is like uh, a more legitimate use case than 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 just driving on the street, right? 
Um, so we have all these competing uh, ways people want to use Valencia, and then the private auto just wins by default. Um, and so what we're really thinking about is like, how do we change that conversation, right? Out of all the places in SF, like Valencia is one of like two or three that I can think that would be best served by really just taking cars off and making a pedestrian street. To tie this together, I think the center running lanes provide like a really good basis for some cool direct action and some cool, like, uh, some cool advocacy. Like now we have the bike lanes in the middle. Uh, what, what sold me on these center running lanes is in my ideal future pedestrianized Valencia, I want bikes in the middle. I want the rest of it to be continuous pedestrian space from the sidewalk into the street. They, they had these block closures, um, last year and they're bringing, I think they're bringing them back this summer, uh, where they're going to like close some blocks to cars. And I remember biking through that and be like, I don't know where I'm supposed to bike. The pedestrians all, all over. Mm-hmm. Obviously, once it's mixed use, I, as a biker, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to yeah. get the pedestrians the right away. Pedestrians always come first. But I think I, I've, I was like in my head, I was thinking like it would be helpful to have like some sort of designated like, hey, here's where the bikes are going. It's still a major bike thoroughfare, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of riders a day. Um, so putting bikes in the middle makes sense to me. Uh, and I think with the center running lanes now, we can just have to like, we can like block off various blocks like maybe have a block party in in the side of the street or maybe you know um have have a bike uh, have a bike ride where we we overwhelm the street and like just like show that like no no people want to use the street in a way that uh requires cars to be out of here and then show that and then and push for that and then you know with all the other ways that robin and zach and everybody else is pushing are we going to be able to bring the advocacy groups together again on the other end of this to kind of realize the ultimate, the best vision, best version of Valencia Street? I mean, I think that's what all three of us are focused on now is now that we have this next step in front of us, you know, I think there's two, two goals. The first one is, um, you know, how do we hold SFMTA accountable to providing data and really actually making changes if things aren't proving as safe as we would hope them to be. Um, And I think we can all kind of come together around wanting to see actual iteration here instead of just stagnation. Um, And then I think that the second thing is that I think there is a lot of alignment that we all want to see Valencia have fewer cars for the long term. Um, And I think we're all going to be working on that, whether it's through the direct actions that Safe Street Rebel is going to be leading in the future, um, you know, working with city staff and agencies as Zach and I have been doing a lot behind the scenes um, and, you know, rallying people in the neighborhood to support these changes long term. Um, The one other thing I do want to point out in all of this is that we haven't touched on yet is that um, the fire department in San Francisco has been a major obstacle to or a major constraint on this project, I would say. Um, A lot of the division, I think, leading up to, you know, what bike lane design is best, whether it's side running or center running um, and the options that were put in front of us by MTA really came down to the fire department saying, you know, we have restrictions on how much street space we need to get engines by each other. And uh, the transportation agency not being willing to really push back on those in a, you know, in a way that worked well. And when we talk about the materials that are being used, you know, there was a six month delay in getting this infrastructure in the ground because when the center running lane was first proposed, it was just like soft hit posts that was going to be protecting it. And actually to the San Francisco Bike Coalition's credit, 
they really pushed to get stronger materials in air quotes uh, here because the materials that we're seeing are plastic mountable curves and K71 bollards, which are slightly more substantial than soft hit posts, but really not a lot. Um, but the city had to go spend six months with the fire department testing whether those materials were going to be okay for big fire trucks to drive over them. So I think when we look at a street like Valencia and we look at the options in front of us, you know, the division in the advocacy community, I think, came down to should we hold out for something that might come at a future date and might be better, or should we do something now and try to move forward? But really behind the scenes, like a lot of what's driving the choices that we're seeing is this, you know, institutional resistance from the fire department to anything that lets us substantially improve street safety. How, how does Valencia Street fit into the network of slow and car-free streets that's being built out in, in San Francisco? Like, what? It, where is it in the network? Just for, for people to understand, is it is it a vital part of that larger network? Yeah. Is it sort of its own unique? I can, I can take this. Um, it's, it's, it's crucial. Um, it's, it's hard to overstate the importance of Valencia um, as, as a north-south path through the mission, which is San Francisco is a city ruled by topography, um, by hills and valley oh, and, and, and all this. So we, we, the, the places that bikers want to bike are like, there's going to be certain streets we really care about because it's the only way to avoid going straight up a hill. Uh, Polk Street is probably the best example of this, but Valencia is is similar in that the mission is like a largely broad, flat area. And that, that sort of contributes to why it's such an important commercial and cultural hub of the city is because you have like, it's maybe one of the biggest neighborhoods in the city because the other neighborhoods are smaller valleys. Uh, you have, So you have a lot of people that have settled there, you know, Latina people, but there's also an old Irish community. There's a black community in the mission. Like you have all these like uh, different groups of people that are, that are living there. Um, and, you know, and that's the uh, kind of worms of like, these people are not always in agreement with each other, but the Valencia, at, but it's been made car centric uh, and, or had been. And Valencia is like uh, the, uh, there's a slow street that parallels it uh, a couple blocks over called Shotwell. Um, but in terms of like ridership, in terms of like connectivity to BART, in terms of connectivity to other, like to Market Street, which, you know, takes us, takes you downtown or to the South part of the city, like, uh, I, Zach, you might have the numbers on this, but like it's it's one of the most ridden bike uh, street, even in its current like disastrous state, is one of the most ridden bike uh, streets in the in in the city. But like even more beyond that, like it's it's like a, such a important like you're never that far from Valencia if you're if you're on the east side of the city where most of the people live. Um, you will if you will take it to get somewhere. Um, we need like physical infrastructure to get cars off these streets. And, and then maybe, you know, even if people don't like it now, people will be like, oh, wait, like five years from now, I'm like, I can't believe we ever lived like that. You know, 20 years from now, people are like, I can't, there were cars on Valencia. Uh, a, oh you know, I want to, I want to be old and tell, tell my kids be like, yeah, back in the day, there used to be cars. <laughs> What's so that? True. San Francisco has set, always sets the stage. And so thank you for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get ya. 
Heart started push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get ya. Heart started push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Any words of wisdom? What about for all the other kids trying to learn how to ride their bike? Everybody, I know you can believe in yourself. If you believe in yourself, you will know how to ride a bike. If you don't, you just keep practicing. You won't get the hang of it, I know it.